cliffcentral.com. All right. It is uh, Thursday morning. It is time for the Burning Platform. And this is our moment to get into current affairs. All the big stories of the week. We often invite guests who we think are uh, useful and interesting commentators who have a take on things that will help the rest of us to understand stuff. Uh, sometimes we have people who've written amazing books. Sometimes we have both in one person, and today is such a day. We will be joined in a short while also by Ian Cameron, who I'm just, I really only wanted to get him on just to find out whether Becky Taylor has apologized yet uh, for all the things he said. And when um, our producers were talking to Ian and mentioned that we're going to have our guest Mark Shaw, and he said, oh, wow, I've read lot of his stuff and I often quote him so it all comes together this morning beautifully so Mark it's a great pleasure to have you here Mark Shaw is our guest this morning along with Pumi and I and with you to talk about all of the things that are in the news but Mark has just written a book called Breaking the Bombers it's an interesting story about how the hunt for Pagad uh, created a crack police unit that's the actual uh, subtitle of the book and uh, we'll find out about that in a minute but how are you I'm good, good thanks. To grab, just pull that microphone a little bit closer. Bit closer. There Thank you go. so much. That's yep. excellent. So, Mark, um, you've, you've written a number of things over your time, and I also want to just give people an idea of who, who you are and what you did before this. You're the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I mean, that's, that's, there's a lot of things to unpack in that. Sure. We'll get to it in a second. You were also previously the National Research Foundation Professor, Professor of Justice and Security at the University of Cape Town. You worked for 10 years at the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. So plenty to discuss there too. And you've had a number of positions in the South African government and civil society where you've worked on issues of public safety and urban violence in the post-apartheid transition. So I want to avoid the temptation to immediately generalize the conversation and talk about crime, <laughs> war on drugs, International <laughs> crime, Interpol, policing in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Let's just focus on your book for a second so that we can give that the appropriate attention it deserves. It's obviously something you've worked on for some time. So a lot of us have to stretch a little to remember Pagad. It was a big thing, I was in high thing, school. Right? You were in high school? I was in high school when, when that was a thing. thing. Mm. So just remind everybody because perhaps that's the context in which we need to understand the book. Yeah. Payad was a very important uh, phenomenon in in the immediate uh, post democratic society, uh, uh, Gareth. And th there was this upsurge of response to crime on the Cape Flats. Drugs had been pouring into the country during in the course of the transition. But Pagad turned extraordinarily violent, assassinating gang bosses, ga members of, of criminal groups. There was the farming, famous bombing of that uh, pizza place in Cape Town. Exactly, yeah. St. Elmo's. And then, it, it. and then there were 400 bomb blasts in Cape Town. So just think of that now, 400 bomb blasts. 20 of those were against civilian and state targets. The most notorious, I suppose, was the waterfront bomb of August 1998. But that was, that was one of three bombs at the waterfront. And as the book recounts, there were some failed bombings, so very big car bombings um, against a, a, a gay bar, the Bronx, uh, mm -hmm. which didn't go off properly, I think would have been the biggest bomb in South African history, honestly. <sighs> but they, they got the, the explosives mix wrong. So it was this very big security threat emerging uh, you know, a couple of years after 1994. And the state was 
I would say confused, not exactly sure what to do with it. The focus was on community policing. So the initial response was to talk to these guys. Indeed, Pagad had a lot of community support uh, uh, initially. Just remind us also, uh, Pagad, their, what was their thing? It wasn't just gangsters uh, or anti. The, the, the name was People Against Gangsterism and Drugs. Correct. That's what it stood yeah. for. But that's, that's not what, what they, they said they stood for. Is that yes. what they stood for? Who the, were Pagad? I, I think the book makes the argument that the core group that had formed Pagad were from an organization called Kibla, which had not supported the transition to democracy, sort of a radical uh, Islamic-oriented uh, 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 group with, who, had, who, had, who had a lot of sympathy with the Iranian revolution. And they were looking for a constituency. Now, I don't want to say that people supported Pagad I would say people supported Pagad because they wanted to respond to drugs, which, gangs, were, which, which were, was a legitimate Were response. and continue to be issues which affect those communities more than anyone else Huge in issue. South Africa. In the Cape issue. Flats, it's still the number Huge one thing. Issue. But it is apposite that we're talking about this. Yeah. And you've drawn a couple of parallels. I don't want to stretch it too far. Yeah. Between the events of this past weekend on a global scale and some of the events that South Africa was dealing with in a, a microcosm back in those days. What does your book tell us about how big this was and how far it went and what the conclusions with a little bit of hindsight and the rearview mirror effect, what have we learned? Have we learned anything from the way Pagad rose and then kind of disappeared? It's a good question. I think, I think the first issue is that crime, insecurity, uh, is a is a point of mobilization for for people, and that mobilization is both good and bad. It's good because actually, indeed, we do we do need to mobilize against crime, insecurity, and the like. And and it was and is a huge issue uh, in Cape Town and around the country. But vigilantism often turns pretty nasty. And in this case, the justification of the core group was. Well, the state is in bed with the gangsters, and of course, there is evidence of state uh, of police corruption and a linkage. You know, the state is doing more to defend the gangsters than than uh, uh, us. The ordinary. that was the assertion then, and it is now. Yeah, yes, in, indeed. And so, th this was when the campaign turned to focus on the state, civilian targets, uh, the Weinberg Synagogue, etc. Just a whole plethora of targets outside of uh, what you would ordinarily think an anti-crime campaign would be. So, but t so tell us more about this crack squad that was created yeah. and what has since happened to them. Well, what what happened essentially is that the state, the state, didn't and couldn't define what Pagad was. So they stretched out to work with them at first. They tried. There was an attempt at negotiation, that kind of fell apart. Uh, and as the threats, and then there was a kind of internal assessment in the state that Pagad was growing into a, well, a key threat to, to state security. And this key moment, and the moment is really the waterfront. Uh, uh, they're, they're sort of key moments. One is the, the killing of, of Stucky, the burning outside Rashad his house. Stucky, yeah, I yeah. remember that. There that, yeah. that, 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 were still waves of consequence from yes. that up until just a few years ago. Absolutely. This is a defining moment. Pagat got a lot of public support uh, uh, for that. The waterfront bombing is the, is the next, I would say, key moment where support begins to move away. The state becomes extremely concerned. P 
Pagat never claims responsibility for the for the bombs. I think this is an important point to say. And in fact, there's a lot of misinformation about who planted the, the, the bombs. And a lot of survivors I spoke to still don't know. They still want to talk to the bombers. They want to know who, what was their objective at the time. You know, people lost legs, have been badly injured. Their lives have been dramatically changed by, by these explosions. So it basically became something the state termed, and correctly I would argue, an urban, urban terror campaign. But the state wasn't really able and ready to, to respond. And uh, um, the detectives working on it, the, they were, you know, the cases were simply not being cracked. Uh, there wasn't a strategic response to, to what was going on. There were very few arrests until uh, – uh, until a, a sort of group of people stepped forward and began to work together, and that's the beginning of IDOC. So the book mentions Percy Son, Percy Son and others. And in this period, 1998 to 2001, is a whole lot of innovation takes place in the South African criminal justice system. Converting from an old system of policing those into are, a new one. Those are words we haven't heard for yeah. a long time. Indeed, and that's the point of the book. And And in a sense, the old system wasn't appropriate for policing in a new democratic framework. There was a lot of calls at the time, you may remember, for detention without trial to be returned. In fact, I was speaking to detectives at the time who were saying, well, we can't confront this threat. We need, we need detention without trial again. We need uh, uh, you know, harder laws to be able to deal with it. IDOC was the, the beginnings of the scorpions, this idea of combining prosecutors, uh, investigators, intelligence folk into a more cohesive, independent response it was the problem was solved largely on the intelligence front. I would say it wasn't a a perfect success, and the book recounts uh, uh, what I think is a very important story of how the last bomb was was the, the state intervened to stop the bombing of a pub in Belleville, would also have caused a, a a lot of of injury and loss of life. The bombers, bar two who bombed the Lansdowne police station, none of the other bombers served they may have been in prison but they never served time or were convicted for the bombing so yeah. the core group of bombers is around six or seven people those guys have never served time how old are they now i would say they're in their 40s uh, uh <laughs> 50s uh, um uh, maybe a bit older there's a, there's I, i'm i'd be interested to know what their backgrounds were right because Today, we see, we were talking earlier about cash and transit heists, yeah. and we saw the videos on social media of that very uh, highly publicized yeah. uh, bombing of the truck yeah. on the N12. Of, and bombs are a special weapon, yeah. right? And there's a level of training that needs to go with it. Yeah. So I'd be interested to know about these bombers who never served time and what, 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 what kind of training they had and where they came from. It's a very interesting question. Essentially, the knowledge for making the bombs came from guys who, a small group of guys, two or three, who had received training pre-94 as part of the liberation struggle. So these guys, uh, uh, Kibler had been aligned to the PAC. They had got foreign training around to do that. They passed that knowledge on to a wider group of guys who became the core group of bombers. So uh, there was a sort of training around the making of pipe bombs. As the as they turned to civilian targets, they began to experiment. You know, with timers, uh, with with uh, uh, different mixes of of uh, materials, 
Uh, hence, the, the big car bomb at the, at the Bronx uh, uh, didn't go off. So it was this, it was both learning, you know, before the days of the internet where we, you could sometimes look these things up, uh, uh, it was self-learning plus learning that people already had passed into this core group. Now, the core group is not necessarily linked to the wider movement of Pagad, which had a, a, a lot of support, and then support started to dissipate. I think mm. the, the, the community of Cape Town clearly were uncomfortable in the direction where this was going, although... Again, to make the point, they never claimed responsibility. So, but but it was pretty clear, and it remains clear to me that indeed they were responsible. I do think that this uh, would make fascinating reading. Breaking the Bombers is the name of the book. I'll put a picture of the the cover of that book up here, so you can see it right now. Mark Shaw's latest work, brilliant, compelling, and important, says Justice Malala, who's a regular here on the Burning Platform with us. So, Mark, um, I want to bring in Ian Cameron at this sure. point, um, mostly just because I like stirring and causing trouble. Uh, Ian knows this. Uh, Ian, it's always good to see you, and I see you've been all over the news lately, not always for uh, great reasons, and by that I don't mean things that you've done to yourself, but I mean that there's so much going on at the moment that is just a mess in terms of policing, criminal justice. You must have heard what Mark said just now about those early days of Pagad and what, what that meant to the Western Cape in terms of policing. You deal with so many people in the Western Cape police now. Mark says that there was in fighting Pagad the emergence of this incredible crack unit, which somehow seems to have been one of the few successes in the police in South Africa post-apartheid. But um, the police at the moment, uh, you could say, have gone backwards from, from what Mark is saying. Would you agree with that? Uh, good morning, Gareth. Good morning. Morning. Uh, good morning, guys. Uh, yeah, I, uh, unfortunately, I, I think it has gone backwards uh, quite a bit. And I mean, we can go on for days. Uh, you, you know, Mark, when you uh, I, I read Give Us More Guns, in fact, that's probably the number one reference that I use um, uh, so, so very often when it comes to criminality in the police. Uh, involvement from the police's side, not only in actively committing certain offences, but but literally giving the tools to criminals in order to be able to commit the offences. You know, last week I was in uh, in, in Mitchell's Plain, Lentegier uh, area, and uh, it's it's known all around that both of those stations and Lentegier lately quite a bit. Um, has some kind of a criminal involvement. And it's very, very difficult to work at those stations and to work with some of the cops because even though there are so many good cops at those very stations that we work with really well, um, it takes such a long time to build a trust relationship because you really don't know who you can trust or who might be family with the wrong person or friends with the wrong person. Um, but yeah, Gareth, I, I, I think I think we're in for a, for a rough ride. Um, you know, I I listened to the police minister uh, and his briefing just about two weeks ago, and they were releasing information, or he was he was speaking of successes, and some of the successes were good successes, and I think we need to give credit where credit is due. What bothers me, though, and and I think Mark would be able to to also elaborate on it, but what bothers me is that we have this way of speaking about, you know, uh, huge numbers of arrests that are made. We speak about all these, uh, you know, so-called operations, say, for example, like with the Zamazamas, but we don't see any form of conviction. And and when when you guys spoke about the whole Scorpion model uh, just now, 
um, you know, it just brought back the idea of how crucial that integrated or synchronized effort is uh, from from all the entities involved. And I, and I think that's where we're lacking. You know, we these kind of one hit wonders in terms of arrests. But then it falls flat, and we see the well, same criminal back. We can only the we can only imagine how frustrating that is for those police who are trying to do their jobs, because then they do their jobs, and it all falls apart after they've executed their responsibilities. But you bring up the police chief, so let's just uh, remind ourselves of what happened uh, not so long ago. Uh, you were at a community meeting. This took place. Anyway, we don't need to watch the whole thing. Uh, have you received your apology? Because Parliament ordered him to make an apology to you. <laughs> no, I haven't. Um, I'm so, but dis- I must I'm be so disappointed. <laughs> I was holding out hope. Ask Pumi. I even said, maybe you got a handwritten note with a you know, box of chocolates or something. Nothing. And I bet Pumi told you that it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it look, it's very quiet. In fact, he said he's going to appeal the decision now, hmm. which is so silly. You know, just in terms of a, to appeal, of a political to waste, move. To waste time appealing a decision on an apology. But okay, yeah, Pumi, you want to say, no, say something? And, you know, because Ian raises <laughs> something interesting for me about the police stations that are well known to have involvement with the, with, with the criminal element. Yeah. And also makes me think back to very famously Jackie Selebe and how he had very deep uh, connections to the criminal underworld and how much of that has then steeped into the police force and created a police force that by and large is not interested in any kind of law enforcement in Mm. your view. Mm. Yeah. I, I must say one of the things that I think in the Western Cape, but not only, that has bred corruption is the system of informers, like the very system of crime intelligence. Um, and when you look at the gang system, there's an interface between the police and, and the gangs, which has occurred over a long period of time. You know, gang bosses as informers, people being paid off by the state, and money talking in these arrangements, money going both ways. Uh, hmm. um, and and I think we need to understand that when we understand how policing has turned out, particularly in in places like uh, uh, the Cape Flats, because it's you know it's a cash economy, it's a drug economy, and that's that's damaged the the, the police over time. And the gangs do it deliberately. They pick people who are influential, who may have decisions around dockets. They begin slowly in the process of corruption. So this is this has damaged. It's not a new phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon that has become much more uh, uh, serious over time. And the point I want to make is it was inbuilt into the system. But then if if I ask you to just pull back into your international uh, experience as well. I mean, we've all watched Narcos. We know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's not just Narcos because it is what it is. It's just very, very well dramatized, right? But if you think about places like Mexico, where we know that the gang's own the politicians because campaigning is expensive, right? And so they have the money. In your international experience, how does the rest of the world deal with this, if at all? 
You know, is this just the way that the world works now? It's These are hugely challenging issues, and you put your finger on it, that, you know, we've just released a global index of, of organized crime where South Africa doesn't do, do well. Um, but what that index shows in a enormous number of countries, getting close to three quarters, there is state protection and involvement around organized crime. So the state is a vector in the criminal economy. We think of the state as being good and the criminals being bad, but often uh, to varying degrees, um, people within the state for money and other reasons protect uh, uh, (laughs) criminal elements. And the solution, frankly, uh, and, and the second point to make on the index is that democracies are much better at fighting organized crime. They're vulnerable in some ways, in the f- political party funding, but they're much better than authoritarian states. In fact, in authoritarian states or more like authoritarian states, the state takes over criminal markets because that becomes the biggest criminal group in town. Okay. So, and so what's, That's an interesting finding. I, yeah. would, I would not have thought that. And it's, I mean, it's kind of the biggest group on the block and the state then extracts money patronage from the the criminal economy they come into a mutually beneficial arrangement exactly yeah. with the state being dominant and you can you know very good example arguably is is the developments in in Russia over time but not yeah. not not only so the point is in democracies what what do you need as a solution Free media is crucial, what you guys do, right? It's exposing, debating, uh, uh, putting the issue on the agenda. Mm -hmm. Independent law enforcement, and I think that's where the book is going. And I think that's where the the new, well, where the innovation in South Africa has to come from. What does that mean, independent law enforcement? It means law enforcement, which which is resourced, led, and outside of political control. So and there me, are ways in, in, in to structure and do that, and I think that's where we have to aim in the context. Of let me bring Ian in on this then. I mean, that makes sense to you. I saw you nodding along, Ian. Um, what, what, do you, what do you have to add to what Mark just said? And, and perhaps also bring in, through your experience on the ground, um, what you think uh, may be viable solutions going forward in, in, in this particular realm that, that uh, we're talking about with Mark. <laughs> So, so I think it's crucial that the state doesn't have the centralized monopoly on, on safety and security. It's, it's absolutely crucial. I think that's one of the reasons why the Scorpions functioned well. I think the main reason for it having been uh, disbanded, as we've seen with many other specialized type of uh, efforts, was that the ruling party or whoever else was involved in um, in organized crime would would not be able to get away with it were those bodies successful. Hence the reason that someone like Minister Becky Thaler stays in the position that he's in. So what I've seen, and 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 I mean this is this comes from the, the mouths of so many South African police service members, is that they keep on even asking through us, is there any way that they can get quicker access to go to City of Cape Town to work in Metro Police or to join some kind of another municipal or provincial law enforcement uh, uh, body? The problem with it is that, um, one, it, no, let's rather say the positive first, it does work well, um, it does make an impact. The problem with it is it's a very cosmetic impact, and I don't think it's a long-term solution because the criminals just hold back a bit, they watch, they learn, and then they just adapt their operations accordingly. And the thing is, these bodies aren't able to actually do prosecution. So they can't go straight to the MPA uh, or to the DPP. They they must hand over the docket to the South African Police Service and that's where it falls flat again. So I just think it's crucial that 
you know, we have different bodies. They might have slightly different roles, but the one keeps the other accountable. It's almost like healthy competition. You know, you've got you've got different angles, eyes and ears that 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 form part of this approach. Something like Prasa, let's use that as an example. They've got a, a peace officer body that was mainly trained by the private sector in South Africa. They are peace officers that can do certain things. They've got a mandate to do it. And they could actually make a huge impact on something like theft and, and other organized crime around Transnet specifically. The problem with it, though, is that the, the police minister wouldn't give certain other entities the same peace officer status. They just deny them access to it. And eventually you come back to this problem where the state has the, the alone centralized monopoly through SAPs. I, I have to ask this because it, that sounds great, but we already have the biggest private security network in the country. They private are, armies. They're, not, they're, they're still mostly unable to stop any kind of real crime. The, the government is highly unlikely, Ian and Mark and Pumi and everyone else, government's not going to hand over their monopoly of violence to anyone else or their ability to no determine the, the, how the enforcement of law takes place. They would rather be incompetent at it and withhold their power than let someone else be competent at it and give that up. And they proved it, right? They proved it when they didn't come back with a reservist model that functioned. They proved it when they disbanded something like the commandos, not necessarily the best uh, solutions, but at least it gave some kind of a different statutory power to communities and, uh, um, and, and, and other bodies. Um, the thing is, Gareth, that the private security industry, again, it, it, it feels like a, a cosmetic fix. It, it doesn't solve the root cause of the issue. It's well, like, it, it, it's it like also, sticking a plaster I mean, on a wound. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm not a statist in any way, shape or form, but I do get nervous about the idea of any of that monopoly of violence, as I call it, being handled by private companies as or well individuals. Because we know how that can very quickly lead to as well you should, militia... To um, who controls them? Gangsters, to all you know, and and frankly, I'd rather see the enemy in a position in the government than not know the enemy as some shadowy figure operating in society for their own benefit and executing that power in an arbitrary and capricious way. Well, I suppose you know, Ian brings up the issue of community reservists. Um, and we spoke earlier about the community's dual role with PAGAT, yep. right? Where initially they seemed to support it, but then realized that, yep. that they are actually a threat. So what kind of role can communities play in, in being part of the solution, if any? Can I make just a point on vigilantism generally? Because I think it's, a, it's an important one related to the PAGAT book. Sure. In, in, in our experience around the world, uh, Gareth, the... the what often happens with violent vigilante groups, Pagad's an example, the sort of militias in Brazil are an example, is that they themselves become criminal. Mm. Uh, um, and why is that? Because in the case of Pagad, they would shoot a gangster and what would they find? Drugs and cash in his house. They would take it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so your, your point on being able to see the state and have some form of accountability is very, very important. That doesn't mean communities shouldn't be engaged in, in assisting and supporting and engaging in, in crime prevention. But there's a kind of red line where vigilante groups armed cross the line. 
And then you have multiple armed militias and, and, and others who almost inevitably become criminalized. And so I think that's a very important point in, in, the, in the overall uh, uh, context of this discussion. I, I think, the, well, what the book tries to say is that we need, when I say an independent investigative body, what best practice shows is, yes, you can give some political control around the strategy, the focus, etc. But you build, you build essentially a, a body with operational independence, with a board of the great and the good that looks after it, who targets the key criminal actors within the country. It's likely to require a constitutional change in the context of South Africa to do. But this is the solution that, that countries have adopted where, there, where there's this meshing between politics and, and, and organized crime. Of course, the political elite is reluctant to, yeah, of course. to do this because yeah, they are targeted and, and what happened to the scorpions, we know. But this is part of the, the solution. And you need protections because, of course, that independent, independent or uh, uh, law enforcement body itself can become abusive. So you need these checks and balances built into the system. And we don't have that now, I'm afraid to say, in, in, response, in relation to our response to organized crime. I see a comment from Sanella here, which I think is, is also instructive. And maybe, guys, uh, if we can just look at this for a second. And, and then I do want to focus on the Western Cape, which is an area that both of you have a particularly useful insight in because there's also an ongoing battle between the provincial government and the national and how much policing can the provincial pay for and, and, and order around and how much can the national government be involved. Obviously, it's a power tussle. But which- it also looks like in the Western Cape, there is a, an incredibly sophisticated criminal element that has infiltrated totally. yeah. from an international perspective. So not just, uh, you know, so it's not just totally. like, drug runners in the Cape Flats. If you consider that a couple of months ago, a, a somebody, Interpol, intersected a, a, a very well-known I, criminal. I, I, I do want to look at that. I'm going to give you all a chance to respond to it. But Sanele's comment, I think, is useful too. It's like intelligence, he says, is a myth to this government. They operate on guesses. Now, we pay for the national, what is it called? The NIA, right? National Intelligence Agency. Uh, these are the people who had no idea when the riots broke out in KZN. They had no idea when half the things that have happened to the country since then happened. Do, is this a, a body that we're just paying for that's really just another sheltered employment place for cadres? Or is it actually a useful institution that delivers meaningful intelligence and helps law enforcement? I mean, I, I think the, the big weakness we have, which has been said many times, is in the crime intelligence area. I think this is an area, as I've tried to suggest where there is a lot of corruption because of course it's driven by money there's it's not very transparent for mm-hmm. obvious reasons um i don't think there's a necessarily there may be sources and other things there are sources and other things being run but the results are generally very poor uh, um and i think there's not really a strategic understanding of the level of threat we face here of organized crime i don't think the government fully understands and and that's what we've been saying in our index just how big the organized crime threat to south africa is there's a theme coming yeah. here there's yeah. a theme building here in in so many ways uh, just a lack of understanding a lack of any kind of um sophisticated thought put yeah. into all kinds of things whether yeah. it's maintenance of electricity 
infrastructure, <laughs> whether it's crime intelligence. Do you want to add anything to that, uh, Ian, with your experience with uh, intelligence in the police, intelligence in, in national security? Yeah, I think it's important to say that it's not necessarily always that it's completely dysfunctional. It might be dysfunctional for what we want it to be. It might be dysfunctional for what we would like to see in terms of combating organized crime as we see it. But I think it's been very well manipulated to suit a certain political ideal. And it's and it's been misused and abused several times, as we've seen before, the infamous grabber deal uh, from the previous national commissioner, even with Fakilian Balula's involvement, et cetera, et cetera, mm. where um, intelligence, whether it's crime intelligence, national intelligence, it doesn't actually matter. They've abused those bodies for a specific political purpose. So it's become a little bit of an iron fist, you know. It's almost like how the presidential protection services don't report to the same divisional commissioner in the police as all the other protection services do. It's like a, like a, they, a bit like they a Gestapo or a KGB. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and okay. all of the iterations, you know, starting with the Scorpions, changing uh, it's, In fact, it's, sorry, I just want to correct myself there. There's more like a Stasi than either of those. <laughs> But, and, you know, the, the latest iteration being the SIU, which sits in the presidency and looking at the kinds of cases that they pursue and who they pursue looks a lot like a political, politically charged environment. Uh, it, I take the point. I think the SIU does pretty good work. I think generally, however, the response from the state is very fragmented. Uh, uh, you know, there's an organized crime unit in the police now dealing with organized crime. There's the Hawks. There's a new body within the NPA, etc. New body uh, in the NPA. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, again. And, and <laughs> so the, the point is generally, in a way, I, again, I return to the strategic assessment of what we face. I'm, I'm not convinced... I, I think bureaucracies talk amongst themselves. There's a there's a sense that when outsiders say this, they are being overly critical. The sense that we are talking up the problem of organized crime. But the, God forbid the, we should be overcritical about our own security. Indeed, and and so the issue is, I, I think, a much more strategic response. Take on the top cartel criminal leaders here. I mean, you talk about foreigners in the Western Cape. There are enough local uh, uh, key criminals. Uh, who who are well who who control the criminal economy here? Mm. Basically, in the Western Cape, in particular, foreign criminals can't move in that space without uh, alliances with local criminals. I, I mean, the criminal economy there is totally sewn up. If you go in there and and begin a a, a criminal economy of your own, I mean, you. What does that look like? I mean, drugs, drugs, what are you talking about? Okay. drugs, extortion, and the like. Where the state, I, I must say, the the, the and recent this is known. I mean, it's not it's like not, this is they're no. not hiding the ball here. No, no, not at all. Uh, the recent arrest of a very prominent uh, uh, alleged criminal uh, uh, um, Stanfield is, I think, a step in the right direction. It shows we can do it, but we need twenty prosecutions like that to to make a difference. Okay, so do you want to quickly, Ian, add anything about the Western Cape? Um, I just uh, uh, briefly, Gareth, I think it's it's crucial to say that the Western Cape management of South African police service has been completely infiltrated. I think the majority of it is somehow involved in some kind of organized crime. It's not only me that, that feels that way. It's what COP says. Uh, Judge Tulare said it recently. Um, it is. It, it almost feels like common knowledge. It's like a little system on its own that's this 
big criminal uh, entity um, that's completely intertwined with senior police members. All right. Can I throw a complete spanner in the works here? And I'd love to hear what both uh, of our guests and you, Pumi, have to say about this. But El Salvador has done some very, very controversial and interesting things <laughs> recently, which couldn't have escaped you. You pay attention to international policing and international criminal justice systems in a way that most of us don't. It's your work on a daily basis. El Salvador built this enormous prison. Uh, people are criticizing. You've got people like um, Amnesty International saying mm. it's inhumane. They, they have far too little space per prisoner. People are sent in there and they never heard from again. You have lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth by wives and daughters and sons outside of the prison. I'm like, well, my dad went missing. My brother went missing. We just never heard from him again. Zero tolerance approach to crime. Absolute top-down clearing out of the police They've removed any vestiges of criminal links there. If you even suspected of it, they have a very uh, efficient and fast and sometimes probably unjust system of determining who goes into prison and who doesn't. But crime has hit an all-time low. And by and large, the population is safer than they've ever been. Now, a lot of people criticize this as being draconian, but many people will say it's particularly effective. Are there things we can glean from this that may be useful to us? Or are we going to continue to play this game of uh, graying everything instead of making it morally clear and giving clarity to what criminal justice is actually there to achieve? First lesson from El Salvador is don't let your country get that bad. Uh, um, where so, your population vote for a government yeah, that goes to that extreme. Exactly, where you get this populist outcry and the government intervenes. The levels of abuse, as you point out, Gareth, are extraordinarily high. They would just not be sustainable in the South African context. That said, of course, <laughs> people can now walk on the streets where, where gangs are active, but gangs extorted everything in El Salvador, from buses to schools, essentially what is growing in some parts of, of South Africa, notably the Western Cape. Yeah. So uh, I think my point would be intervene now, because once you've gone the, the, this populist arrest everybody route, the problem is that the long-term consequences of that become political too. It's, it's the gangsters first, in my view. Later, it will be political opponents. Some of these things are a sort of slippery slope. Well, it, it, a lot it, has to happen to get to that point. But on the criminal justice side sure. of things, like, again, I'm saying, like, let's give credit where it's due here. Despite all of the criticism we expected and anticipated from the left, when this, the regime took over in El Salvador, and they continue to make noises, it has worked. It can be demonstrably shown that the average El Salvadorian safer. is safer now. Women and children feel better about the world they live in. Obviously, there's this huge issue inside of prisons, and that's yep. not going to go away. I'm certainly not looking to exonerate the entire system. And people haven't stood trial, so you know, yeah, in a way, this is not great. But this it, is what happens when you go too far the other way. Yes, it's true. And to return to the Pagad book, the, yeah, calls, the people who started Pagad would be in total favor of the El Salvador <laughs> system. Except some of the people who started Pagad would also be in prison because yes. they're involved in, in the criminal economy right. now uh, 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 too. So I, I, I really think we should be careful with models like that. I think there are solutions within the framework of the rule of law which can be successful and greatly reduce crime rates. Uh, so a couple of, a, a couple of p potential gangsters go into jail for the rest of their lives, but innocent civilians get to be free and enjoy a peaceful life. 
Potential gangster. Everything's everything's a trade-off, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people would say that's not a bad trade-off. Potential gangsters. We don't and know. And how do we decide on, yeah. we don't know. on that potential? Uh, we don't know, Pumi, but a full prison, um, I think we could do with more of those. And we, I think we, meet, we, we may need to build a, <laughs> we a, have, we we to build a special one just for politicians. We have full prisons. <laughs> Okay, uh, Ian, Ian before, in some before we move on, Ian, <laughs> you want to say anything before Pumi takes over in this one? Uh, sorry, I'm having a, sorry, a very, very good laugh. You're laughing. No, I'm, I'm saying I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. I'm, I'm having a good laugh. Um, I, look, I, I, I think one of the excuses, just on a serious note about the prisons, we very often hear yeah, no, but prisons are too full. And just in a South African context, and I just say, well, build more. Um, we, yeah, but, we, but, we but, but as as someone says in the comments, Ian, uh, the gangs are run from prison in South yep. Africa. That's also true, right? It's prisons so are a breeding ground for gangs. This is where the, the checks and balances yeah, 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 also come yeah. in, you know. Um, that It's crucial that we have those checks and balances. Um, I'm just saying that it, 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 it gets very frustrating when you always hear, you know, but the prison is too full, so he has to come out because whether he's in or out, he continues with the, with the criminal act. In fact, some of them are very successful with running the entire enterprise from prison. Mm -hmm. um, it's what they do best. Can the, I say something very prison. shortly, Gareth? I, 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 the other day, we were with Cot Blanche about a child murder not far from Paul, and um, four gangsters that I always see there, all four of them are often in prison. They always greet me when we get to the parents of this child. And they always offered, offered to look after my car. And uh, um, on this day, it was raining. And I just decided I want to know their story. So I walked over to them and people might frown, uh, say it's frowned upon. And I literally hooked my arms into two of theirs. And I said uh, in Afrikaans, I said, so um, which one of the four of you Luxems have been in prison last? And all four of them answered exactly the same time and they said um, Akmanir and I laughed and we sat down on the sidewalk and then I started chatting with them and I started speaking with them and, and one of the big things that came out um, and I said to them but why do you keep on you know doing the wrong thing and they said well when I came out the first time and all of them said this when I came out of prison the first time I really wanted another chance so I tried to get a job etc but as soon as someone years I came from prison mm -hmm. they immediately closed shop and then he said but I have to feed my children so I start with petty things and it escalates and eventually I continue and then eventually all of them are in some kind of a prison gang in numbers for example one of them specifically you know said he's he's a 28 not because he wants to be necessarily he says but it became a way of survival not only in prison but even on the outside so you know there's a there's a big social context part that we need to understand i don't have all the answers i just know that yeah, but, but that's let's at least stop bullshitting each other those things are downstream from whether or not your your criminal justice system works or not they are downstream. So, you've got to, somewhere you've got to make a decision. And if you're the government, sure. that decision is yours to make. So either you're sitting your hands like it seems ours are, or something horrible is going to happen. Well, speaking of downstream from a criminal justice system that is or is not working, I think it's disingenuous to talk about how full the prisons are when you also have the system not working in that yeah. most of the people sitting in prison are awaiting uh, are, trial. Are awaiting trial. So if the system was working, if it was moving in the way that it would, you would be able to 
A, sift out the people that you can put into a rehabilitative system. You would be, all of those things, are, you know, it's a, um, it's interdependentness within the system that says, how do you, A, when you bring in young offenders for petty crimes, how do you make sure that they don't end up embroiled in a lifelong life of crime? Well, consequences right? for your actions. That's all there is to it. But right? it, it, I mean, Mark? Can I just return to the El Salvador model which you raised? There's 100,000 gang members in, in the Western Cape. Or, uh, uh, it's just not a practical solution to round everybody up. You know, in the El Salvador example shows people are fingered who aren't in gangs. People are – it's just a – Yeah, someone's wife cheats. Yeah, and exactly, and they point it out. It's a, it's a nasty way. And what you do is you create a long-term breeding ground which you have to fund for organized crime. As Ian says, I don't think the solutions are easy, but you have to stop gang recruitment. You have to go for the top. You have to break the political criminal nexus. Those are the things we, we, we have to do within the constitutional framework we have, and we can succeed if we have independence. Do you think we can succeed? Because if people stop believing yes is the answer to the question I just asked, we're on our road either to an El Salvador example or just complete anarchy. Those yes. are the only two options. If, if, am I wrong? Uh, the answer, if, if it's not yes, is one of those two things? I mean, we uh, uh, independent reviews of South Africa on our index show South Africa's seventh in the world for organized crime. So that's it's just below a couple of point, points below Mexico. That's pretty <laughs> serious place to be. Our homicide rate is in some ways higher. Um, so this is a challenge, and, and countries that do badly on the index do badly across a range of criminal markets. So South Africa's criminal space mm. is very, very complicated. It's not a mafia state in the sense that state controls organized crime, but there are vulnerabilities from illicit mining to drugs to whatever, wildlife, where criminal activity is pervasive, and it can be stopped. We know who some of the key individuals are, and, and we can act if the state has the political will uh, to do it. Ah, ha, there Pumi, it there, there are those words, political there will. It is. You knew that was going to come up, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, criminal it, enterprises, we uh, have some of them sitting in parliament. What about, uh, I mean, guys, let's just talk about the NPA. You know, you mentioned them in a cursory way just now. Uh, Shamila Batoy, I think a couple of weeks ago, she made some surprise appearance somewhere. She's still in that position. We still have no bad people in orange uniforms from any of these many commissions of inquiry that we've had. Uh, just what exactly do either of you have to say in defense of the NPA? And is there perhaps an idea of what we could do better there? Or who we could do better, or you know, because we, we tend to jump to personality politics. But Shamila Batoy doesn't even have a personality. So, is there something you could say in defense of the NPA? I let Ian start. Ian, yeah. <laughs> you go ahead, Ian. <laughs> Why do you, you say something like that, and then I have to I have to say whether someone has a personality or not? No, um, no, no. Just uh, tell us whether it's working or I'm not. Just that's joking. all. No, I don't, I don't think it is working. And, and, and it comes back to the drawing board in terms of the system. Um, it's incredibly frustrating when it comes to prosecution of whether it's uh, serious or minor offences, that the system is, is developed in a way where the defence of the criminal can literally delay the process in the name of, of rights. Now, again, uh, there's, a, there's a fine balance, there's a fine line that we need to have. 
but it makes it incredibly difficult. So even when you do have a great prosecutor that really does try to do what they need to do, if the whole nexus or the value chain of officials involved in that process doesn't function properly and if all of them don't have the same end goal, it makes it very difficult to put, put these criminals behind bars. And, and, and for that reason, I don't see a major improvement at the moment. Since she's been there, I don't feel like anything's changed. We hear a lot of good things being said by her uh, and being promoted, but I haven't seen much, so much you, difference. I, I'm hoping with the recent arrests in the Western Cape, like with some of the gang bosses, I'm hoping that something good comes out of it. And I, and I do have hope that we can bring change. But I'm, I'm still skeptical. So to summarize, you're saying it's the NPA, the non-prosecuting authority. Amen. All right. Um, now your turn, Mark. <laughs> uh, I think there's a long way to go, uh, um, uh, Gareth Primi. I, I, it needs much more resourcing, more skills, uh, I think the leadership in the NPA is serious about wanting to do things, but there are budget cuts. I think we need a specialized response to organized crime, which doesn't really exist in the NPA. They rely on... Well, it was eviscerated the, by the Zoom administration. Correct, yeah, and they rely on dockets coming from the police. So the system is, in a sense, broken for the level of sophistication that, that we require and the level of strategic response that, that we require. I think we're not set up to tackle organized crime now in the institutional structures we have. And I think this is the, the, the key point about learning from elsewhere. That's why I think we need an independent anti-organized crime uh, um, and corruption body, and we should lobby for that as, as citizens. How, how would you see something like that coming together? That's an interesting idea. But how would it constitute itself in such a way that it would have a mandate from the people and from government. Well, it, it, it would need the development work and the legal work to make it possible. It would need... Oh, some, we got lots of lawyers. Yeah, yeah, and sure. They, they charge like a, a wounded structures. buffalo, so we yeah. just need to pay a bunch of lawyers. Yeah, I mean, and remember the, the Scorpions, okay, it's almost like you're not allowed to mention the name Scorpions in the political discourse because people don't want to return to the Scorpions. But what was the Scorpions? Independent, well-led, not with massive resources. Uh, uh, resources are tight now, mm -hmm. but they made a difference partly because they understood the symbolic importance of law enforcement rushing up, you know, with cars, targeting individuals. And they individuals, were competent. And they were competent. Like uh, yeah. that word always comes up and, you know, the ANC hates that word competent because the, they don't have any of it. So, <laughs> you, you know, I just did a quick little Google search here to see, because we know that Cyril Ramaphosa appointed Shamila Patoi. And people who listen to the show know how I felt about that when it happened, when it was announced. <laughs> um, but, you know, and we spoke about political interference. Yeah. When you have the head of your national prosecuting authority being appointed by a political head, mm -hmm. it kind of, you know, the, yeah. the political interference there is, hmm, well. But more than that, I think we talk about competence and we've spent a lot of time today talking about where some of those um, answers are going to come to from our challenges, whether in the community, whether in the police force. But the one thing that we really haven't spoken about 
not today and not for a long time, is we haven't spoken about individuals who care more about this country than about their back pockets. Individuals who care more about making sure that this country works, not just for us today, but for the children that we have, for our what looks like our future. You're talking about the fact that we're sitting at number seven in the world in terms of where we are in a very precarious situation. What we need is we need not just politicians, police, communities, but we need more South Africans who care about South Africa first. I would. Before themselves, before their back pockets, before their friends, before their jobs. I would, and venture, then, I would venture to say we have two such people on the show today. We have, then, then we have a chance. Then can, we have a chance. Pumi, can I say, just can I return to the index? It's, yes, very technical and analytical too. What does it say in addition about South Africa, which mm -hmm. I should have added, is that it's in a group of countries, not many, 14, 15, that have both high levels of organized crime, but high levels of resilience to it. Why? A measure of some institutional capacity, free media, uh, uh, investigative journalism, etc. So the point I want to make because people often in South Africa is all, all is lost. Actually, if you travel around and look at organized crime elsewhere, all is not lost here. And we have to mobilize to build the institutions to respond precisely because we have the democratic framework, platform, freedoms to be able to do it. And we should not forget that. And if we go the El Salvador route, I promise you it will be a slippery slope to where we don't want to be. So there's only one route for us to to build, and we, in, you are right in a sense, it's a political problem, right? Uh, um, well, we live in a democracy. We need to mobilize around solving that and giving a key set of solutions to organized crime. I don't see the opposition always providing the best options to organized crime either. We have to think bigger around the, the, the threat that we face. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Mike Drop says, I, I fully support El Salvador's way. So many relieved citizens, so happy with their country now. Yeah, I'm not. I, for I, now. For now. For now. Uh, yeah. Okay, but you two are warning about a potential future you can't predict either. Well, until your son is also arrested as part of the sure. sweep. Absolutely. I'm, I'm saying there are yeah. obviously huge risks in that system. But which side are we erring on here? In a, in a country where people, the number one thing they bring up almost inevitably is, and not just in the Western Cape, all over the place, crime. Now, it's not my preoccupation. Yeah. But for many people... Sleeping at night would be a nice alternative. Now, I know that obviously in this foreseeable future where suddenly people are arrested capriciously, that that knock on the door or just the door being blasted off its hinges <laughs> could quite as easily come from the state as anywhere else. And our states are pretty incompetent at running everything. So the chances of them fucking up the El Salvador model, which is not a great model to start with, are very high. But there are no consequences built into society sure. in South Africa. We see... You know, multi-billionaires who are residing all over the world on money that they've stolen from our fiscus. We see politicians in this country who are thumbing their noses at us while their pockets are being stuffed with cash. We see bankrupt municipalities everywhere with no one being held to account. And people are just up to here with it. I'm, I'm just saying that this is an alternative that will present itself at some point to South Africa. Sure, we in better the populist have, discourse. We better yeah. have some good arguments yes. against it if we think it's bad. And one of the really good arguments against it is it captures the excluded people at the bottom of the pyramid, rounds them up and imprisons them. The, the elite that you are talking about 
including in El Salvador, are not behind bars. So there's this false satisfaction about about who you put in prison, which does reduce violence because they are the tools of, of, of criminal actors and the criminal elite. What we have to do is target the criminal elite uh, uh, and put them behind bars and intervene, yes, with social, economic and other interventions to prevent people being drawn into criminal groups. There are no other fancy silver bullet solutions. We have to face it. But we need to do all of that together. And honestly, the El Salvador solution is not going to work in South Africa. Mm. It would have been as much effort here to do it to change what we I, need I'm, on an elite cr- crime-fighting agency. I'm just agency. glad we, we yeah. had the conversation about it because <laughs> it hasn't come up on the show before at all. Yeah. And it is happening under our very noses. Because we have, we have El Salvadorian journalists in our network uh, writing and pointing out the abuses if it happened here, you would have people on the show and, and you yourselves would be protesting against it. So it is not a solution. There are solutions within the framework we have that we can pursue if we push forward um, and lobby coherently around them. I don't doubt yeah. that. I, I certainly think that the best place to start is for everyone to read your book. Breaking the Bombers is what it's called, Mark Shaw's latest book. Um, he uh, has written many other books which are also worth reading. Our other guest, Ian Cameron, has been reading them. So thank you both, gentlemen, for your participation today. Ian, I know I brought you un, uh, in under the, under the auspices of just having some fun <laughs> about Becky Taylor. Um, are, you going to, uh, are you going to expect to hear from him again anytime soon, even if it's his appeal going his way? No, I don't, I don't think anything will come, come of it anytime soon. I think it's very silly of him because um, he's like the best marketing manager we could have ever asked for. Um, <laughs> he just gives his, his critics even more reason to, to take him on. So um, I wasn't expecting anything. It came as a surprise to me, but I don't think he'll, he'll really respond. If he does, again, it's, it's in our favor. So um, if I were him, I would move along swiftly, get it done and focus on my job. All right. Well, um, as Pumi said, we need South Africans who are going to get their hands dirty, get stuck in, who care, who are interested in making things work where they're not working. Certainly, I think that the work that both of you are doing in different ways is going to contribute to the rest of us getting involved and doing more to sort out this uh, very, very messy criminal justice system we have. Thank you so much. Ian, very good to see you. And Mark, thank you for coming in this great morning. Pleasure. It's great to have you here as a, a part of this conversation. I'm, I'm absolutely sure we'll have you get back again soon. And thank you for your participation today. If you were in the comments section and uh, you were ignored... Hey, I can't do everything. Uh, we'll get to <laughs> we'll get to some of these points in future episodes. We forgot to tell people to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, they've got to work <laughs> it out by now. You can't do everything for me. I mean, really. And uh, I think we steadfast, steadfastly and assiduously avoided dragging Ian and Mark into a discussion of what's going on on the international playing field at the moment, and with regard to what's just broken out in Israel and in Gaza. But we will pick up that conversation, no doubt, next week. And I'm sure there'll be lots of opinions to be brought. It's probably better to have the space of a little bit of time. A little bit of distance. For people to be able to figure out precisely what these consequences will bring. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a happy day. Cheers. Bye-bye.